Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike Todorovic. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Dr. Matthew Barton. How are you today, Matty? Good morning or afternoon? Uh, it is uh, 11.08 in the a.m. on Wednesday, August 10th? 11th. 11th. Yep. Day uh, after census. Yes. Did you do your census? My wife did it for me. Oh. Yeah, she's great. Did she have to do it for both your children? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I had to do it for the first time for my daughter. Ah, there you go. Wouldn't wasn't, have there to... wasn't much to say. No. <laughs> Same with my two kids. Today, Matt, we're talking about something to do with the cardiovascular system. Specifically, we're focusing on cardiac output. I want you to justify why we need to do this topic. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> uh, because I teach my students cardiac output. Yeah. And a podcast is a nice way to learn about it. Or I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that it isn't relevant. Yes, I'm just interested to find your motivation for why specifically cardiac output. We were doing other um, recordings today, and then you said we need to do a podcast where behind the times, which is true. Mm, it's been and a while. You're like, let's do cardiac output. Yeah, and I'm thinking, why? Okay, cardiac output's very important because it's one of the two factors that contributes to blood pressure and blood pressure is probably one of the biggest underlying causes for cardiovascular disease. Okay, but we have done blood pressure. We have indeed done blood pressure and we focused on the various important aspects associated with blood pressure. Cardiac output in itself is important to understand because it justifies how the heart works as a pump. Any changes to the heart's activity as a pump will change cardiac output. And if cardiac output changes, blood pressure changes. So I think the cardiac output podcast, which will be today and we'll do a very good job of that, will preface the blood pressure podcast quite nicely. And it's a lot of time for those students who want to revisit things like blood pressure and how the heart works, but also important because uh, every single first-year biology student, whether it's a nurse or a doctor or a physio or a science student, they all need to learn about cardiac output. Okay. Anything else, I was just being difficult. You were being antagonistic. All right, so what are we going to cover besides saying cardiac output? How are we going to do this? Well, I think the first thing we need to define is that the heart is a pump. And when it contracts, it pumps blood around the body Mm -hmm. for various reasons that I'm sure we're all aware of. Deliver oxygen and nutrients and take away waste products. Okay, so uh, it pumps blood one side of the heart because it's two sides, left side and right side. Left side pumps oxygenated blood to the body whilst the right side of the heart pumps deoxygenated to the lungs to get oxygenated. Correct. And so the most important point here is that these various arteries, pulmonary artery that leaves the right ventricle going to the lungs to get oxygen and the aorta leaving the left ventricle going to the body to deliver oxygen. Uh, these ventricles, when they contract, they generate pressure and force and they eject the blood and it's these ventricles that determine the pressure that occurs around the body. And and that, is the pressure the same on both sides? No, it's quite different. Okay. But that's important when it comes to cardiac output. So we need to understand cardiac output in that sense. So the first thing I think we need to do is define cardiac output. Cardiac output is how much blood the heart will eject every minute. Or I should be specific, how much blood each ventricle will eject every minute. And do they have to be the same on both sides? Well, cardiac output is the same on both sides. Okay. Yeah, so for example, if we were just to take the left side of the heart Mm – 
and calculate how much blood does the left ventricle eject every minute. It's a really simple equation. You just take, well, how much blood does it eject with every con- with one contraction yeah. and multiply that by how many contractions it has in a minute. In a minute. And that's heart rate, right? The yep. amount of contractions yep. in a minute. Yep. So if you were to write down, listener, oh dear listener, cardiac output equals heart rate, so how many beats in a minute? Per minute. Times something called stroke volume. And stroke volume is simply how much blood we eject with every beat. Yep, makes sense. And that's cardiac output. Now, on average, the heart beats around about 70 times a minute. And the stroke volume is about 70 mils, which is around about five liters per minute. So cardiac output, left side of the heart, five liters per minute. And amazingly, the right side of the heart, the right ventricle, five liters per minute. Which is interesting because and I think a lot of students misunderstand this because they look at the heart, they see the heart on the left side so much bigger, three times bigger than the right side, mm. at least in the ventricles, right? And they would assume that the left side, because it's pumping to the whole entire body, which is a long way to pump, um, must pump more blood. Yeah. Whereas the right side just pumps to the lungs. Lungs is just sitting next to the heart. doesn't pump that much volume. No. So like you said, the pressure may be bigger. So the pressure in the left ventricle or leaving the left ventricle is higher than that on the pulmonary trunk, but the volume's the same. Yep. Because I guess essentially if the left was to pump a greater volume, then you would get all blood on one side back right. up, and yeah. you, which is a type of heart failure. Yeah. Kind of, right? You'd, yeah. You'd, one side of the heart would be playing catch up mm. and you can't have that. And I think a lot of students also think that blood, because we always teach it as, you know, it goes from right atrium, right ventricle, lungs, left atrium, left ventricle, body, and then back, that the blood does that. Does that. No, it's, it, it's everywhere at once. Yeah. But it is moving through each one of these various anatomical structures at once. But it is one way, Yeah. right? All right, so I think in order for us to discuss cardiac output and these factors appropriately and what can change cardiac output. And so cardiac output is changing all the time, right? All the time. And that is to, to kind of adjust to what you're doing all the time. Yeah. So you may be sleeping. You maybe then move to the couch, yep. watching Netflix. So that's what you do. You just you have twelve hours of sleep and then just get up and go to the couch and lay down again. And then you go to the kitchen. Yep. <laughs> go back a, to the couch. No. Make a ham sandwich. <laughs> but um, you might decide, okay, it's time to do some exercise. Yeah. And so for when, you, once every few months. <laughs> so when you exercise, there's demands different demands on the body. Yeah. So that means for you, the cardiac is- ischemic, output. <laughs> <laughs> ischemic demands. Um, yes. So basically going. the cardiac output has to change minute to minute, second to second. And that's probably the most important factor that I didn't explain is that the cardiac output must meet the demands of the tissues of the body. So five liters per minute on average at rest. But like you said, if you exercise – the tissues of the body, specifically the muscles, need more oxygen and more nutrients and that comes from the blood. And what could that go up to? As in the… the cardiac output. I think it can go up to 20 litres per minute. Yeah, Even more, I think, yeah. for, for the athletes. Yeah. I, I read at least 35 litres a minute. There you go. It's a lot, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So th- I like to – the way I explain to my students so it makes a bit more sense is um, if you have a one-litre jug of milk, pour that out 
into a cup or over the sink in a minute and see how much milk actually comes out over that time. And then at the end of that minute, that jug should be, well, it's got to be five litre, a five litre jug, I should say, not a one litre jug. Five litres of milk in a jug. I don't think you can buy five litres okay. of milk in one go. You know what? How about you get a jug that can hold five litres of water, fill that up, and then slowly pour that into the sink over a minute. And you'll see how much water actually comes out over that time. And then you do that for what, 85 years? That's a lot, isn't for it? For you, probably 65 years. That's a, you know, that's a long time. And it does it quite efficiently. And again, the demands change. So imagine doing that. You're an athlete. Pour 35 litres of water out over a minute. That's a lot of blood to push through. Mm. All right. Cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. If you increase any of those two factors, heart rate or stroke volume, you'll increase cardiac output. If you decrease any of those two factors, you'll decrease cardiac output. That's the premise of this conversation because we can talk about these factors and then we can talk about drugs and interactions and all this type of stuff. Can you start off with heart rate for us and just talk a little bit about some of the factors that can influence heart rate? All right, so heart rate, as you said, is the speed of the heart contracting. So you would assume that the heart itself, at least the the part that's going to do the pumping, yeah, um, is excitable tissue. Is Absolutely, that, yeah. Is that fair? Yep. Now, the majority of that excitable tissue is what we call myocardium, which is muscle cells, cardiac muscle cells. Can we just qu- – let's just quickly define excitable tissue. So any tissue that has the capacity – to do something, muscle tissue, nervous tissue, endocrine tissue, that's all defined as excitable tissue. Yeah, I guess. I never thought endocrine tissue, but you're probably right. Yeah, because you can you can change its ability to release something. So mainly it's nervous and muscular, but there are some endocrine tissue that you could define as excitable tissue. I thought it was more to do with just the way that the, the membrane can kind of conduct electrical activity that's probably the poor term just the exchange of ions which would then change the excitability of the membrane yes but i guess in a way that um endocrinal tissue like let's say beta cells in the pancreas have to do that to release its insulin right yep so you're probably right yeah ion changes can absolutely tell beta cells to release insulin so uh in terms of the heart the excitable tissue being myocardium and that's the majority of the heart that i would assume is uh excitable now they're the workhorse of the heart. Yeah, it's the okay. Dr. Mike. <laughs> so they, they're, the, they're the things that are doing the work. But like any horse, it needs Here we go. A, a jockey. All right, that's Dr. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> it should be the other way around because I think if I sit on you – well, you are strong. but You break my back. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so there are exci- – You are a bit chunky. There are cells in the heart, excitable cells, that dictate the speed of the – Excitation. Yep. Okay. And these are kind of pacemaker cells. That fair so far? Yeah, they set the pace. And uh, there's two kind of groups. So they're the jockey. Yeah, the jockey. All right. So there's two groups, two main groups in the heart. There's one in the uh, atrium, right atrium, uh, kind of, how would you say it, probably the superior lateral aspect of the right mm-hmm. atrium. And we call this the sinoatrial node. Yep. And then there's another group that's kind of at the atrioventricular junction which we call the av node now they 
their excitable excitable tissue, they will spontaneously depolarize. Oh, what does that mean? Depolarize basically means um, becomes more positive internally. So because they're excitable tissue, it means, at least in my eyes, that at rest they have the potential to do something and that potential sits in a charge difference yep. from inside the cell to outside the cell. So if, if you're listening to this podcast and you've got a pen and paper in front of you, you could just draw a circle and draw some positive things outside the circle, some negative things inside the circle, and you'll see that there's obviously a charge difference yep. compared to inside and outside. Yep. That's the potential. There's a potential for that charge to change, yes. right? And so if you make the inside more positive... That's depolar- oh, it's going to become depolarized. Yeah, you're depolarized. So at the moment, it's polarized. Yep. So if there's a polarized topic yeah. in politics, it's for charged. example... Yeah, it's a, it's a charged topic. It's different. Like your opinion is different from my opinion. So it's different from one side to the other. Like Earth being round versus flat. I don't yeah, know Yeah, I why think it's round <laughs> and you think I had to jump in there quickly. Um, so it's the same with, with the cell. A cell at rest, an excitable cell at rest is polarised. Positive on the outside, negative on the inside. And like you said, you said these spontaneously depolarise, which means they spontaneously chuck in positive stuff. Yeah. To change the inside charge. Yeah, and and how frequently will they do this per minute? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, well, the heart beats seventy times a minute, so seventy times more, oh. up to up to a hundred times. Oh wow! So that means that they have the potential to automatically depolarize on their own without any kind of influence, up to a hundred times per minute. So if I pulled a Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom on you and shoved my fist into your chest and pulled your heart out. It would beat in my hands until it runs out of oxygen. Yeah. There you go. Wow. So anyway, the point Let's here. Give it a shot. The point here is this group of cells, the SA node cells, um, because they're firing so much quicker than the rest of the heart, they become the pacemaker of the heart. Okay. Yep. And so let's just say, for instance, between seventy and hundred, what's the halfway point? Eighty-five. Yeah. We'll call it ninety. Um, they fire ninety times. A minute. Right, but your heart rate isn't... Yeah, we'll get to that. Okay, okay. So that means it has the potential to tell all the other myocardial cells to, to beat at this speed. All right. Okay, does that make sense? It makes sense. Now, from that SA node, because it has to get to the other side of the atria, um, which is a bit of a distance, there are some nerve fibres that carry that um, signal across to the other atrium. So what that basically means is the atria will kind of contract um, at about 90, 90 beats a minute, All right. thereabouts. Now, when you try to get into the ventricles, the heart surprisingly does have a kind of skeleton to it. It's not a bony skeleton, but it's a connected tissue skeleton, like a right. collagen skeleton. Electrical activity can't get through that skeleton, so it means that myocardium can't push any electrical activity into the ventricular myocardium. So this separates the atria from the ventricles. Yeah, oh. so it kind of stops there, yep. which means, well, how does the heart conductivity get into the ventricles? Well, it sends... I didn't ask that. <laughs> it's, the SA node also sends a signal down to the AV node, okay, which then holds on to the signal for a second or two. No, it should be a second. It's point one of a second. <laughs> to, yeah. to a point. Second or okay. two. <laughs> you got a heart yeah. block and you're going to die. Scrap, <laughs> scrap that. Point so, one of a second is the break. Okay, so yeah. it holds it 
And then the AV, also it has its own auto firing. Yep. But this time it's a bit slower. It doesn't fire at 70 to 100. It fires at 40 to 60. Okay. Ah, okay. And so then it goes hold, fire, and then that sin- sends a signal through the whole ventricle through a another conduction system like the, the bundle branches, the Purkinje fibres, which then allow the whole ventricle to contract. And as I said, 40 to 60, therefore your heart rate's probably going to be about 60 beats per minute. Okay. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. so, so this is the intrinsic firing or rate of the heart without any external influence. It's the heart by itself. Yep. And right. that's because it telling, it's telling you that it has its own intrinsic neurological system. Beating at around about 60, maybe 70 beats per minute. Yep. All right. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So that's when you pulled the heart out of me. Yep. It still has that capacity to beat 60 times a minute whilst right. you're holding it. Yep. Okay. But obviously it's going to run out of blood <laughs> quickly. Yeah. And then all the cells are going to die and then you're not going to get really any beat. Okay. So at rest, there's an intrinsic firing of the heart that results in an intrinsic heart rate of yeah. around about 60, 70 beats per minute. And that obviously contributes to cardiac output. Or the heart rate part of it, yeah. The heart rate aspect of it. But we know that if we want to change cardiac output, we'll need to change, or at least we can change heart rate to change cardiac output. That's right. So this is now extrinsic influences. Okay, so there's things that come in and speak to the heart that say what, speed up and slow down? Yep. All right. That's right. Talk talk to us about that. And simply the, the biggest system that will do this is the autonomic nervous system and that being the sympathetic nervous system versus the parasympathetic nervous system. All right. So we know that sympathetic is the fight and flight. And so you would assume when you're running away from a dog, a bear, me, um, it, you would need to... Del- what? Why, why are you chasing our listeners? <laughs> um, for more likes. <laughs> <laughs> double tap, double tap. So as you're exerting yourself from sprinting away from the bear, yeah. you need more blood to your exercise and muscles. Therefore, your heart is instructed by the sympathetic nervous system to work harder. All right. One way it can do this is by bringing sympathetic nerves from spinal cord, from your brain, spinal cord, to your heart. So I think T1 to T4, thereabouts, um, thoracic, one to four. Yep. That could be slightly out, but that's ballpark. Um, bring in these fibres into the SA node. Yeah. Okay. And what it does to the SA node is says, SA node, we need you to be firing quicker. Okay. So what did we say it was intrinsically? About 100 beats per minute? Yeah, 70 to 100 so beats per minute. it's going to tell it to do it even quicker. Wow. So the way it kind of does this is it releases from the, the back end of that neuron that brings – the neuron to the SA node, yeah. it releases a hormone known as noradrenaline or in uh, other parts of the world, nor- norepinephrine. you got to put the accent on, a southern accent. I'm not sure why you did southern, but anyway. It's the only American accent I can do. Okay. You can't do a Californian? Hey, I'm from- That sounds like Grant. He's, oh, he's Canadian. Canadian, not Californian. Sorry, go on. Okay. And so what happens then if you release noradrenaline onto the SA node, basically it kind of increases the amount of sodium and uh, calcium that can enter the those cells, yep. which basically changes its ability to get to threshold All right. or the depolarization, depolarization uh, ability. And it does, just does it a lot quicker. So that means your heart rate's going to go much quicker now. So the way I like to think about this 
is again you've got the positive stuff on the outside, the negative stuff on the inside of the cell. Um, I think if if you're a student and you're trying to learn this stuff, you, you just have to remember that outside the cells we have positive sodium, positive calcium, right? Inside the cells we have positive potassium. Now if you think about it, if you want a muscle cell to contract, you need to make it more positive inside. That's that's it, right? You're just going to make it more positive inside. And the way that you can do that is by letting more positive sodium in or by letting more positive calcium in. Mm-hmm. Because remember, if you've got all the sodium outside and all the calcium outside and you just open up a door, diffusion will dictate they go down their own concentration gradient. Yep, yep. They go from outside in. Yep. So the sympathetic nervous system can just open the door for sodium and it moves inside, depolarizing it, contraction. Or it can open the door to calcium. Calcium goes inside, depolarizing it, contraction. Now, uh, any time you want to change the positive and negative inside and outside, it's going to change its ability to depolarize or contract. So that's going in one direction, but you can go in the opposite direction, right? Right. But that's what you're going to talk about now, I assume. Yeah, but you can finish it. So if you want to not make a muscle contract, yep. then you want to make it more negative inside, yeah. right? Because so think about it, at rest, it's positive outside, negative inside, and you need to make it positive inside to contract. Yep. So let's make it even more negative inside to make it even harder to contract. And how can you do that? You can throw the positive potassium that's inside out. Correct. Yep, good. Or in other cases, you might just chuck in negative things. And a good example of this is chloride. You could throw chloride, it's got a negative charge, into cells, makes it harder to make those cells excitable. An example would be a GABA agonist Mm. like benzodiazepines. Uh, I guess they're muscle relaxants, but they probably work also through nerves, so they depress nerve firing. So, So that's actually a really important point for students is that this isn't just for muscle. It's for any excitable tissue. This is the dogma for excitable tissue. It's all about playing around with the ions. If you want to excite the tissue, do something that throws positive things in or I should say do something that makes it more positive inside the cell. Yep. If you want to stop it from being excitable, this can be again a neuron or a muscle cell, make it more negative inside. That's it. And there's different ways. Again, throw sodium in, throw calcium in. That excites it. Or you can chuck out potassium or throw in negative uh, chloride. Okay, so let's work with the potassium then. So are you you okay with the sympathetic? So noradrenaline on the SA node will actually increase the amount of sodium and calcium that goes in the cell. Therefore, it depolarizes quicker. Therefore, heart rate will go. And it binds the beta-1 receptors. Sorry, I didn't mention that. Yeah, beta-1 receptors. So technically, if you give a beta blocker – Bitter blockers will do a number of other things in the heart, but one thing it will do here is it will slow down this conduction velocity. Because it's blocking the adrenaline yeah. at the receptor, Correct. stopping the positive ions from jumping in. Bitter blockers, they're all the O's. Lol. Atenolol. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't know. There's a whole lot of other ones. Atenolol is the first one. Propranolol. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. So um, that's... The sympathetic effect, what about the parasympathetic? This is the rest and digest. This is where you, or in my case, on the couch or sleeping. Yeah. Um, so you don't need to have a fast heart rate while you're doing these things. So you then activate the parasympathetic nervous system and what goes to the heart is the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve comes down, also comes in close proximity to the SA node, but in this case it doesn't release noradrenaline. It releases 
uh, uh, acetylcholine. And so its effect at the SA node is not to do with the sodium and calcium, but the potassium. Okay. So what it does to the potassium is it kind of makes those channels more leaky. So that means potassium, more potassium leaves. So more potassium exits the SA node, which means the resting potential. Yeah, membrane potential. Is more negative. Mm -hmm. And that means it takes it longer to come up to threshold. So that means the longer time, that means it will slow the speed down. Yeah, so again, remember all the potassium or most of the potassium is inside the cell. So if you make the channels for potassium leaky, it's going to go down its concentration gradient. So the potassium will want to leak out, making it more negative inside, making it harder for the cell to send a signal or contract. Yep. So it makes total sense to me. So And that's really it. So basically those two main things. Sympathetic, parasympathetic. Sympathetic speed up the heart rate. Yep. Therefore, heart rate, also cardiac output goes up. Or parasympathetic rest and digest goes down. But just a couple of other quick examples that may affect the heart rate um, outside the nervous system could be just the ions in your blood. So, for instance, if you were to take copious amounts of calcium, so you just put heaps and heaps of calcium in your blood, which blood blood is extracellular. So that means you've got more calcium outside the cell outside the SA node, that would actually cause, because of the gradient difference, it would actually widen the threshold difference, which would surprisingly make it harder to to then reach a new threshold. So it actually would cause a slowing of the heart rate. Yes. So I think that's important because that might be confusing for some students. So if you throw all that calcium outside the cell, where calcium is always sitting anyway, calcium's outside the cell. If you chuck more calcium outside the cell, you've got more positive things outside the cell. And remember, again, remember, positive things outside, negative things generally inside. That's the charge difference. And it's not about the absolute charge inside and the absolute charge outside. It's about the charge difference across the membrane. At the end of the day, it needs to be, when it's at rest, more negative inside compared to outside. And then when you want to excite the tissue, it needs to be more positive inside compared to outside. So what Matt's saying is that if you chuck a whole bunch of calcium, positive calcium outside the cell, the difference, the charge difference is it's far more negative inside compared to outside now because you've got more positive things outside. Which makes it harder to get back to its um, depolarization threshold, which then slows the, the speed of the heart down. Yes. Essentially. Now, the other opposite one is if you were to give too much potassium. So right. you were to have excessive amounts of potassium in your blood, so hyperkalemia. What that would do, at least at the SA node, would then make it harder. Because Remember the potassium, when those channels open, it wants to follow its gradient, which is from higher inside to higher outside. And now because you've got more potassium outside the cell because your blood's gone up, that means that uh, diffusion capacity is diminished. That means more potassium stays inside the cell. That means it makes it more positive. That means it's closer to its threshold, easier to hit the threshold, easier to get a heart rate. Yep. And so if you make this too high, you can actually speed the heart too quickly and it becomes tachycardic yeah. to the point if it's way too much potassium where you'll go into a 
arrhythmia and die. Wow. And this is actually a method of how they would perform a, um, what's it called, lethal injection. Yeah, with they potassium. They over, overdose them with potassium chloride. And stop and, the and heart. And their heart speeds up so quick that it goes into an arrest and stops. Wow. Okay. Well, I think they're important points. Uh, I mean, they're important points because what you've basically said is that in two scenarios, in both scenarios, you're, you're throwing positive things outside the cell. But in one, it slows the heart down and in the other, it speeds the heart up. Yeah. And it's all because of where are those ions normally and how would they normally diffuse? Do they diffuse in or do they diffuse out? And you're changing the concentration differences inside and outside and therefore altering the resting membrane potential and therefore altering its ability to depolarize and contract. Can I give, so, one, can I give one more? Well, look, I, I'd prefer <laughs> not, but I think you go for it. So let's just say I'll give you a, a, um, a question to work out. So let's just say you were tachycardic. Yep. We'll, we'll call it supraventricular tachycardia. Okay. Okay. So is that because I'm a super guy? Yep. Oh. I think that just means the tachycardia is coming above the ventricles. All right. Now let's just say your heart rate is super quick and you're trying to slow it down. Yep. Based on what we spoke about, what system would you want to bring in? If you needed to bring the heart rate down – it was just going too quick. Uh, well, I could block the sympathetic nervous yeah. system, so stop positive sodium and calcium going in, or I could activate or agonize would probably be the term, the parasympathetic nervous system, so the rest and digest. And what was the nerve that does this? The vagus nerve. Yeah. And so you could do a maneuver okay. to activate. Tickle my vagus nerve. Incre- yeah, basically. And so not to say this would be done, but this is just an example. If you were to do a diving reflex, mm-hmm. which would activate or a Valsalvin maneuver, yeah. or put stick your head into a bucket of ice, that would cause a fire in the vagus nerve, okay. which would then slow the heart back down. Okay. That's interesting. You like that one? I like that one. And by no means are we recommending Definitely people not. to do that. It's just a physiological phenomenon that I thought was interesting. But, you know, if you have a patient with tachycardia, don't stick their head in a bucket of ice. No. All right. Unless your reg tells you to do so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's heart rate. You did a very good job. Thank you, can, you. you can go now. Um, my turn. My turn, everybody. Stroke volume. That's the other factor. Cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. Now, stroke volume uh, has a couple more factors or variables associated with it, but it's pretty easy. Stroke volume, simply the amount of blood that gets ejected from each ventricle. So if you think about it, what sort of variables can affect this stroke volume? Well, you need blood to fill the ventricle then you need the ventricle to contract and then you need blood to be ejected from the ventricle. So there's three variables there. Now, if we, that's simplifying those variables. Let's think about it in a little bit more detail. If you're filling the ventricle, this has to do with venous return. The venous system delivers blood to the heart and therefore to the ventricle. So venous return is an important variable that alters Stroke volume. The more blood that you return to the heart, the more that heart fills and the more stretched that ventricle becomes. And this is where we start to recruit something called Frank Starling's law or the Frank Starling mechanism or the Starling mechanism, which basically states the more you fill the ventricle with blood, the greater that ventricle stretches, the stronger that ventricle will contract. Just like a rubber band. 
Yeah. The more you stretch, the more it snaps back. And the more it snaps back, the more blood that gets ejected. So this is why increased venous return will increase filling, increase stretches, stimulates Frank Starling mechanism, increases contraction, increases ejection. So increased venous return increases stroke volume. Now, an important term to introduce here is preload because preload is basically that filling and stretching of the ventricles. The way you should think about it is the maximum amount of blood you are going to fill the ventricle with happens in a phase called diastole, so relaxation. At the end of diastole, you will have a particular volume called the end diastolic volume, which will put a particular stretch on the ventricle. That stretch is preload. And therefore, like I said to you just before, the more you stretch, the more blood gets ejected. So the higher the preload, the higher the ejection. So that's it. So preload is simply the stretch that you place on the walls of the ventricle due to maximum filling of that ventricle at the end of diastole. So the end diastolic volume. Brilliant. So done that. Now the next thing is you need to contract that ventricle. So this is contractility or what we sometimes term the inotropic agents. So inotropic agents change the contractility of the heart. But essentially, the harder you contract the heart, the more blood that gets ejected at the end of the day. So there's a couple of things that play around here. So when it comes to inotropic agents, you spoke about the nervous system, right? The autonomic nervous system. So in addition to the sympathetic nervous system stimulating the SA node and AV node, Mm. it also directly innovates the myocardium itself and tells the muscle to contract harder. Right. And we've already said, if we want muscle to contract, you need to chuck calcium in. So that's what it does. So the inotropic agents such as the sympathetic nervous system, so adrenaline, noradrenaline, for example, even thyroid hormone actually, can increase the amount of calcium that you chuck into the cell, which increases contraction. Does a thyroid hormone actually do that or does it just make the um, the effect of the ner- of the adrenergic receptors more Ooh, sensitive? I've heard I've heard both. Okay. Yeah, I've heard both. Um, and obviously if you want to do the opposite, well you just reduce the amount of calcium that you pump in. And that's going to be a reduced like a, inotropic effect. Like a calcium blocker? Like a calcium blocker. Channel blocker. So let me give you some examples here. So digitalis is a drug that you can give, which is a positive inotropic agent. It increases the amount of calcium that jumps into the cell, increases how hard it contracts, increases the amount of blood, the amount of blood that jumps out of the heart or is ejected, increasing cardiac output, which at the end of the day increases blood pressure. Right, and so this drug might be used in patients that have a form of cardiac, uh, cardiac failure. Yeah. So you just want to make their heart more efficient without working harder. Yes, that's right. Um, or nifedipine does the opposite. So nifedipine is a calcium channel. negative inotropic agent. So it's a calcium channel blocker. Yeah, blocker or antagonist. Uh, electrolyte imbalances can do this as well, obviously, which we sort of spoke about before. Changing the amount of ions inside and outside the cell will change the way calcium jumps in. So they're the inotropic agents. Simply put, increase contractility, increase stroke volume. And then the third is the amount of blood that gets ejected from the heart. So you've got the end diastolic volume, the amount of blood filling the heart, and then you've got the contractility, 
pushing that blood out. Yep. Now you need to think about this. All blood gets ejected out of ventricles via arteries. And mm-hmm. arteries are narrow tubes. So those tubes can change their diameter. Mm-hmm. Now if those diameters are more narrowed, then the blood is going to experience increased resistance as it leaves the ventricle. If those blood vessels are relaxed and dilated, there's less resistance that it experiences as it leaves the ventricle. This resistance that that left ventricle needs to overcome in order to eject as much blood as possible, so stroke volume, out of the heart, that's called afterload. Okay. So the two important terms that students always get confused is preload which is simply the amount of stretch on the ventricle at the end of filling. Afterload is the amount of resistance the ventricle experiences when it contracts to eject as much blood as possible. So if somebody has atherosclerosis, plaques built up in these big arteries, it can narrow the diameter of these arteries and it's harder for blood to get ejected. So that means we spoke about end diastolic volume, the amount of blood that's left in the heart after relaxation. That's filling. Filling. Mm -hmm. Once the heart's contracted, which is systole, you're going to have blood that's been ejected. You're going to have blood that's left in the heart after that ejection. So we don't eject all the blood. We eject nearly all the blood. And that's called the end systolic volume. So if you really think about it, stroke volume, the amount of blood we eject from the heart, is simply end diastolic volume, how much we maximally fill the heart with blood, minus... Minus the end systolic volume, the amount of blood that we've already ejected from the heart. So what's left over? So generally, when the heart fills with blood or the ventricle, it's about 130 milliliters of blood. That's the end diastolic volume. The end systolic volume is about 60 mils, which means the amount of blood we eject is about 70 mils. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. So they're the three factors. One point that I didn't add which I should have added for venous return, is what can increase or decrease venous return. Exercise. Doing a handstand. Probably. You're probably right there. Um, But mainly exercise. Because your veins, uh, so two-thirds of your blood volume sits in your venous system. That's a lot, isn't it? Yes. So it's a reservoir. Oh, yeah. It's a reservoir. it's It's a dynamic variable reservoir that we can play around with. When you go for a run your veins actually have muscles surrounding them. So when you contract the muscles, they push and squeeze the veins and actually increases the return of the blood back to the heart. So that's why exercise increases venous return, which increases filling of the ventricle. Is there any particular exercise? Increases stretching of the ventricle, increases contraction of the ventricle, increases ejection of the blood. Sorry, go on. Would that depend on what... What kind of exercise? Like if you're doing more leg exercises because you're pumping all those muscles in your lower limbs that, and presumably a lot of the venous volume would be down in your legs. I would assume that venous return um, would be variable depending on the exercise because of that exact reason. Okay. Yep. I'll, I would think so. It would be really interesting to measure uh, venous return from somebody doing, let's just say, squats. Yeah, I think squats is a big one. To compared return. to somebody doing bicep curls. Yeah. Right. I'm sure. Particularly if you're standing. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure like doing the leg work would increase the venous return far greater, increasing cardiac output, increasing blood pressure. So you could probably indirectly measure it by measuring the blood pressure at the end of the day. So, are there any um, drugs that I know this is not really cardiac output, but it kind of feeds a bit into pre- preload. Are there any drugs that specifically would 
increase the venous return and not so much arterial versus more arterial and less venous? All right, so if so, there's obviously you can change the diameter of these blood vessels, which changes the way blood gets distributed around the body. So you've got the arterial system coming away from the heart, the venous going back to the heart. Uh, angiotensin, which is part of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, angiotensin is a generalized vasoconstrictor, but mainly for the arterial system. So if you squeeze the arteries, you're going to increase blood pressure because blood backs up. But the thing is that angiotensin doesn't squeeze the venous supply, mm. so it doesn't increase venous return. So that would mean it affects more afterload. Affects more afterload, exactly, which will increase blood pressure. Yeah but doesn't increase the filling of the heart with the venous return. So not at l- immediately its effect wouldn't really affect preload. That's right. But what does is noradrenaline. So noradrenaline doesn't care whether you're an artery or a vein. It will constrict you. It'll hold you tight, right? So every time I see you just before a podcast, you grab me, give me a nice big hug and hold me tight. So you are noradrenaline. So that's and why you always say give me an epi- EpiPen. <laughs> I'm going into anaphylactic shock. Um, so... It squeezes both the venous supply and the arterial supply, which will increase venous return, which increases filling, increases ejection and uh, so forth. So okay. I think what we've been able to demonstrate here, because I think we're done, um, <laughs> is that cardiac output is equal to heart rate times stroke volume. Heart rate is the autonomic nervous system, sympathetic and parasympathetic. And stroke volume is basically venous filling, which is preload, contractility, which is, you know, certain agents, calcium, sodium, positive ions, anything that increases contraction, and afterload, which is the amount of resistance present in the vessels that the ventricle needs to overcome. If you play around with any of these things, you'll play around with cardiac output. And if you play around with cardiac output, you'll play around with... Blood pressure. And so this this kind of will then demonstrate why, if we're going to work in the space of um, blood pressure whilst quite a lot of medications working on cardiac output, like you could have medications that will slow the heart speed down. One thing I did forget to say, because you did speak about inotrophic, we should say that um, drugs that change the speed of the heart rate is chronotrophic. Yes, chronotrophic. So ones that speed it up is positive chronotrophic, whereas ones that slow it down is negative. Chronotropic. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Perfect. Chrono meaning time. Time, right. Yep. yep. Um, good. I think that's done. We hit it? Yeah, I think so. What do you reckon? I think we did a good job. Okay. Yeah, 43 minutes is pretty good for us, to be honest. Well, I think this was supposed to be a bit a bit of a shorter one. Yeah. We still have to get back to pharmodynamics. Oh, God. All right, whatever. <laughs> okay, everyone. Uh, look, if you like our podcast, then please give us a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever you listen you, to us to. Can you give um, ratings on uh, – I really actually should know this platform. Um, what's the other one? Beside? Spotify. There we go. Yeah, You can see who uploads all the podcasts here out of the two of us. Well, I edit them. Look. I just can't do the I th- last part. I think, and that's what everyone complains about is the editing. <laughs> If is you, Spotify, can you rate on Spotify? I don't know. If you can, <laughs> please do. Um, give us five stars. Give us the best thing you can do. If you don't think we're worth five stars, um, probably just send, don't um, worry about send it. Send mail to Mike, addressed <laughs> at Michael Dodorovich. <laughs> That's not my email address. Um, but you can send us an email, 
gubiosciences at gmail.com and you can suggest a podcast episode um, or you can tell us what you like and dislike about the podcast. If you dislike it, probably don't bother sending the, the email. But if you like it, send the, the good email. thing about podcasts is you can't see Michael's moustache. Yeah, I've grown a moustache again. That's brilliant. Hey, if you do want to see my moustache, go to my Instagram page at Dr. Mike Todorovic, D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C. And talking about moustaches, do you know there's a Twitter page that is Mike's moustache? Yeah, I don't know who made that. It wasn't me, <laughs> but there is a Dr. Mike's moustache Twitter page. You can see me on Twitter too, at Dr. Mike Todorovic as well. Go for it. Interact with me. Send me a message. Tell me you like the stuff that we do. Again, if you don't like it, just, just maybe go do something else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See ya. See ya.